Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning, heathens, and happy Murder in the News Monday, that's actually happening on Tuesday, that I'm going to try to release every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news is just hot, scary garbage, and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway. So I've scoured the internet for the headlines so you don't have to. Happy commuting. Here we go. So our first one comes from KCTV5, and the headline is, Grandmother Describes Helping Woman Who Escaped Being Held Captive in Excelsior Springs. And this is just outside of Kansas City, Missouri. Nearly three months after an extensive investigation began into a rape and kidnapping, Rose Crowley is speaking about the morning she helped a woman on her granddaughter's front porch. Crowley said the first sound that caught her attention was the sound of someone stepping onto the porch. Then she heard a woman's voice say, quote, please help me. I've been raped. She said, quote, I think I was put there to help her. So I opened the door for her. She came in and she says, I've been raped and held hostage since September. Timothy M. Hazlitt Jr. is charged with rape kidnapping, and second-degree assault. The woman told police Haslett picked her up along Prospect Avenue in early September and held her against her will in a room he built in his basement off Old Orchard Avenue. Court records state that, while executing a search warrant at the home, investigators observed a room in the basement consistent with the woman's description. Around 7.45 a.m. on October 7, 2022, Crowley was babysitting at her granddaughter's home. She remembers hearing the woman's plea for help. Quote, she was shaking from her toes to the top of her head. She was shaking so bad. She was so afraid he was going to show up. End quote. Crowley said the woman had duct tape a padlocked metal collar around her neck, and ligature marks on her wrists. The woman told Crowley when Haslett Jr. left his home with his son, she escaped. Quote, I never doubted her story, not for one minute, Crowley said. Police quickly arrived at the home of her granddaughter, which is just down the street from Haslett's home. Crowley said that, as police began to investigate, she focused on being calm and comforting. Quote, I put a blanket around her and got her some muffins. Those little bitty muffins that come in a bag, I gave her a couple of those and some water. End quote. At the time, she asked police for permission to hug the woman. Quote, he said, yes, so I sat there and held her. Isn't that sweet? It's not sweet that that happened to that woman, but it's very sweet that the grandmother was so good to her. So our next article comes from PBS, and the title reads, Kenyan authorities find 39 bodies during investigation of religious cult leader. So in Nairobi, Kenya, 39 bodies have been found so far on land owned by a pastor in coastal Kenya who was arrested for telling his followers to fast to death. Melindi Subcounty Police Chief John Kemboy said that more shallow graves have yet to be dug up on the land, belonging to Pastor Paul McKenzie, who was arrested on April 14th over links to cultism. 
The total death toll is 43 because a further four people died after they and others were discovered starving at the Good News International Church last week. Police have asked a court to allow them to hold McKenzie longer as investigations into the deaths of his followers continue. A tip-off from members of the public led police to raid the pastor's property in Malindi where they found 15 emaciated people, including the four who later died. The followers said that they were starving on the pastor's instructions in order to meet Jesus. Police have been told where dozens of shallow graves spread across McKenzie's farm and digging started on Friday. McKenzie has been on hunger strike for the past four days while in police custody. The pastor has been arrested twice before, in 2019 and in March of this year, in relation to the deaths of children. Each time, he was released on bond and both cases are still proceeding through the court. Local politicians have urged the court not to release him this time, decreeing the spread of cults in the Malindi area. Now, cults are common in Kenya, which has a largely religious society. Our next article comes from Times News, and the title says, Updated, Former Kingsport Restaurant Owner Pleads Guilty in Killer Clown Case. The mugshot of this woman is sort of a middle-aged-ish looking woman, long blonde hair, smiling so happily. So Sheila Keen Warren, a former Kingsport restaurant owner who was accused of dressing as a clown and shooting a Florida woman in 1990, has pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. Circuit Judge Scott Suskauer, probably butchered that, in Palm Beach County accepted Keen Warren's guilty plea Tuesday in exchange for a 12-year prison sentence. She has been given credit for the 2,039 days since she has been incarcerated, according to court documents. Keen Warren also provided two DNA samples and served her time in a Florida state prison. In addition, she will pay $418 in court costs and $250 in prosecution and defense fees. A jury trial was set to be held May 12th in Palm Beach County. If convicted at trial, she faced up to life in prison. Prosecutors originally sought the death penalty. Keen Warren was arrested near her home in Abingdon in 2017, 27 years after Morlene Warren, 40, was slain in her home in Wellington, Florida. In May 1990, Marlene Warren was shot in the face by someone wearing an orange wig, red nose, and white face paint who handed her carnations and foil balloons after she answered the door, authorities said. Keen Warren, an employee of Marlene Warren's husband, Michael, was considered a person of interest early on, authorities said. The two later married in Vegas and moved to the Kingsport area. In 2017, detectives said advances in DNA technology, combined with evidence gathered in 1990, showed Keen Warren was the killer in what had been dubbed the Killer Clown Case. So, wow, that's interesting. So, 
Our source is Jezebel.com, so take that with a grain of salt, as always. The title says, Surviving Roommate in Idaho Murders Asks Not to Testify in Brian Koberg's Trial. Bethany, one of the two surviving housemates in the University of Idaho's quadruple homicide, has rejected a request to appear at the upcoming proceedings. In November, two students survived the brutal murders of their roommates, Ethan, Madison, Zanna, and Kaylee, in an off-campus residence in the University of Idaho. Now, as Brian Koberger, the man charged with committing the quadruple homicide, prepares for trial, one student has just rejected the defense's request to testify in the proceedings. In a new report from NBC News, Bethany, one of the surviving roommates, has filed a motion with a judge that asks that they not enforce a subpoena requiring her to appear at the preliminary hearing and potentially Koberger's entire trial set for late June. So the girl's lawyer wrote that the court, quote, has no authority to request the presence of their client who resides out of state and has not been named a, quote, material witness in the case. The attorney went on to allege that the defense's subpoena is in an effort to make Koberger's preliminary a, quote, mini trial of its own. Quote, there is no further information or detail pertaining to the substance of this testimony its materiality or its alleged exculpatory information of Ms. Funk or why it would be entertained as preliminary hearing, end quote, the filing reads. Meanwhile, Koberger's attorneys have argued that her testimony is necessary because she has evidence with the potential to prove Koberger's innocence. Mm-hmm. How many of us think he's innocent? Raise your hand. My hand is not raised. Moving on. From TrueCrimeDaily.com, the article reads, Son arrested after Indiana mother found with, quote, large kitchen knife protruding from her head. So this is Brownsburg, Indiana. A 31-year-old man stands accused of attacking his 59-year-old mother and stabbing her in the head this week. On Monday, April 24th, at approximately 12.23 p.m., the Brownsburg Police Department responded to the 1500 block of Midnight Pass to a report of a stabbing where officers discovered Susan Early lying on the ground in the front yard. Neighbors assisted Early, who had suffered multiple stab wounds and, quote, still had a large kitchen knife protruding from her head when police arrived. Early reportedly told officers that her son, Kyle Braun, had attacked and beaten her in the kitchen of her home. Neighbors advised police that Braun had fled the scene on foot and indicated his direction of travel. Following a short search, police found Braun and took him into custody without incident. Early was transported to the hospital in critical condition and underwent emergency surgery. Now, Braun was reportedly hospitalized for, quote, superficial wounds to his hand, but he was later released and booked into the Hendricks County Jail on charges of attempted murder and two counts of battery by bodily waste on an officer. Two counts of battery by bodily waste. He remains held without bond. Well, I would certainly hope so. 
Our next article comes from NBC News. The title says, California mother sentenced to life for murder and torture of 10-year-old son, Anthony. Heather Maxine Barron's boyfriend, Kareem Esterno-Leva, was also sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for the 2018 murder of Anthony. So a California woman was sentenced to life in prison in the murder of Anthony Avalos, a 10-year-old boy who was tortured to death after suffering years of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse by his mother and her boyfriend. Heather Maxine Barron and her boyfriend, Kareem, were convicted of first-degree murder in March. They had faced the death penalty, but Los Angeles County District Attorney George had said his office would no longer seek capital punishment after he won his 2020 election. How convenient. The boyfriend was also sentenced to life in prison. Both were denied probation and ordered to pay $7,500 in victims' compensation funds. Their attorneys have filed notices of appeal. It was an emotional sentencing hearing as family members offered tearful victim impact statements. Anthony's half-sister, now 13, began reading a statement to the judge Tuesday, calling Barron a monster who failed to protect her children. An adult took over reading the statement after she broke down into tears. Barron was also seen wiping tears from her face during the statement. Quote, I'm finally free of all the torture and abuse. If I'd known that this would end with me losing a brother, I'd do it all over again with just one difference that it would be me, not Anthony. So Anthony was taken to the hospital unresponsive on June 20th, 2018, in cardiac arrest and with a traumatic brain injury. He died the next day. The court found that her boyfriend was the perpetrator of the lethal abuse while the mother aided and abetted him. His half-siblings watched as he was abused over six years. They testified that they were also punished and forced to watch one another being punished, sometimes as the boyfriend repeatedly dropped Anthony on the bedroom floor. So far, our next article, it comes from NBC2.com. The title reads, Man Arrested in Demonic Murder and Dismemberment of Florida Uber Eats Driver. No pun intended. So, an accused MS-13 gang member has been arrested in Holiday, Florida, and charged in what the sheriff described as a demonic murder of an Uber Eats delivery driver whose remains were found dismembered at the suspect's home last week. Oscar Salas, 30, a resident of the home where the driver made his final stop, was arrested and preliminary charges Monday with murder while engaged in a robbery after investigators uncovered the victim's remains in trash bags at the home. Quote, I'm not going to get into how gruesome this case was. This individual is, dash, what he did was demonic. Investigators believe Solace tried to rob the driver and ultimately killed him. He is affiliated with MS-13, a violent criminal gang with international ties to drug and human trafficking. The driver was not far from his own house last Wednesday night when he texted his wife to say he was making his final delivery and would be home soon. The sheriff declined to identify the victim, but an affidavit in the case identifies him as Randall William Cook, 59 years old. 
That was the last time the wife would hear from her husband, who she reported missing later that night after he stopped replying to her texts and never came home. So GPS data provided the detectives by Uber shows the driver's last known location was Solace's home. Holiday is about 30 miles northwest of Tampa. Motion-activated surveillance video from the home shows the driver at the door with a delivery bag at 6.56 p.m., just minutes after he texted his wife, but the video then cuts off. The next day, video from an additional home camera shows Solace and another person carrying trash bags around the side of the house, one of which appears heavy and needed to be dragged across the ground. When investigators opened the trash bags at the home on Friday, they found what appeared to be human remains in two of the bags. The medical examiner later identified the remains as those of the driver. Yikes. See, that is why I would not be an Uber Eats driver. That is why I would not be an Uber driver. No, thank you. Next. Our next article comes from AP News. The title says, Autopsy, Parents, Kids in Burning Oklahoma Home Were Shot. So, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Preliminary autopsy reports show eight members of an Oklahoma family found dead inside their burning home were each shot. The bodies of Brian, his wife Brittany, and their six children were found in October inside the flaming home in Broken Arrow, a Tulsa suburb. Oh, I know somebody that lives there. Police at the time called it a murder-suicide. Authorities say all six children, 13, 9, 7, 5, 2, and 1, were found in a burning bedroom while their parents were found in the front of the home. The autopsy report says Brian and Brittany Nelson each suffered a gunshot wound to the head and lists the manner of death as unknown. Four of the slain children had multiple gunshot wounds, with the eldest child suffering at least six. Each child also suffered burns to their bodies, but the manner of death for each of the six is listed as homicide due to gunshot wounds. Family members previously told the Tulsa World, which is a newspaper, the couple was experiencing financial difficulties. Our next article comes from Newsweek. The title says, Body of Girl, Six, Stuffed in Bucket and Left Outside Mother's Home. The body of a girl, six, was found stuffed in a bucket left outside her biological mother's home in Louisiana. Police have now arrested the girlfriend of the child's father and launched a murder investigation into the senseless killing. Police in a New Orleans suburb located the girl inside a 10-gallon chlorine bucket on the front lawn of the house at 8.20 a.m. on Wednesday, April 26th. The victim was identified as Bella, and the local coroner ruled the death as a homicide, adding that she had multiple injuries. So following the discovery of Bella's body, police began a search for Hannah Landon, 43, the girlfriend of the child's father. She also uses names like Bunnock Lim and Bunnock Landon. Now, she who arrived with the father had and had joint custody of the child. She is expected to be charged with first-degree murder. During a press conference, the sheriff explained that the child's father had come to the police station to report his daughter and his girlfriend missing. 
Investigators believe that the little girl was killed at the father's home before being taken to the biological mother's house. And I did not see where it said the manner of death. So a little update from my neck of the woods. If you remember where you've been listening for a while, I did a podcast about some Missouri cannibals. And if you remember, there was a woman who was left in a cage, partially nude or partially dressed, and her remains, part of her remains were later found in this man's freezer, wrapped like butchered meat with the date of her death on it. And the rest of her remains were thrown into a field on her grandfather's land, some adjoining land. This is in kind of central Missouri. Um, They felt like, or this has been labeled, a cannibal situation. So the update that I have about that, because a lot of you have asked, is that the main guy, not the truck driver who was living, sleeping in his truck on the land who held her down, but the main guy who killed her, he has taken the Alford plea, meaning that he is acknowledging that they have enough evidence against him to find him guilty, but he doesn't want to say he's guilty. And he has been sentenced to life in prison without parole. So what that means is that we're not going to get a trial. We're not going to get a lot of answers. It feels kind of like we've been cheated, although at least he was found and justice has been served. But Perhaps if they do a trial with the truck driver who only helped, we might get some more information. So I'll keep you updated on that one as best I can. So I did put out sort of a plea to my international listeners to send me some news articles from your neck of the woods, because while most of my listeners are in the United States and they all know where these states are and what's going on, um... I know personally, I would love to hear more about international murder in the news. Well, a couple of you have reached out and sent articles, so I'm very happy to share them. The first one comes from propermanchester.com. The title reads, The Manchester Canal Pusher, A Real Serial Killer or Just an Urban Myth? Since 2006, there have been over 80 accidental, that's in air quotes, deaths down Manchester's canals with no suspect ever being apprehended. So for over a decade, rumors of a serial killer lurking down the canals of Manchester have been rife. However, there's yet to be any evidence of any such killer. So why is the Manchester Canal Pusher such a famous phenomenon and this is so-called killer even real? So it says, let's start from the beginning. Rumors of the Canal Pusher were born on January 11, 2015, when the Daily Star Sunday published a two-page article headlined Manchester's Killer Canals. The article cited 61 deaths in the Canal Way, which stretches over 10 miles through central Manchester since 2006, though since then that number is estimated to have grown drastically to 85, though an exact figure for more recent years is unknown. The paper labeled the mysterious pusher as a serial slayer while pointing out that it's extremely unlikely such an alarming number of bodies is the result of accidents or suicide. A number of the alleged victims have since been identified. In 2011, the body of trainee sports teacher Nathan Tomlinson was discovered in the River Irwell two months after he went missing following a Christmas night out. 
A year on from that incident, 21-year-old student David Plunkett was found dead in Manchester Ship Canal in 2012 after attending a music event in Trafford Park. A coroner ruled his death as an accident, though his parents protested otherwise, because they thought that they heard screaming and howling, that's in quotes, in their last phone call with him. So have there been any witnesses? While any evidence of this so-called murderer is yet to be unearthed and the countless deaths remain either unaccounted for or labeled as tragic accidents or suicides, there is one man who claims to have escaped with his life from one of the infamous canal attacks. He spoke anonymously to the BBC. A man known under an alias name as Tom recalled the moment a mysterious man swung at him as he was cycling home along the Bridgewater Canal one evening in April 2018. He fell into the icy waters of the canal as a result of the push and, when he tried to pull himself out, the man allegedly kicked his hand away. So Tom recalled, quote, I started to think... This is quite serious. It's pitch black down there. There's no lights. You look up, someone catches your eye, and then in four seconds you're in dirty water. End quote. Eventually he was able to haul himself out of the water. After this incident, though, the city's police and coroner continued to deny that there was any evidence of a serial attacker. To this day, the police have continued to insist that the canal pusher doesn't exist. They say, quote, there's no evidence to support the theory that a serial killer is at large. So I hope that there's not a serial killer in Manchester, but the uh, pushing into water and that it's being ruled accidental drownings and suicides. I am currently working on the potential of a possibility of a serial killer around Lady Bird Lake in Austin, Texas. Be looking forward to that on Thursday. And so my last article comes from Denmark. Absolutely love it. CPHpost.dk. And the title reads, Police charge 32-year-old man with murder of Emily Meng. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Suspect currently in custody in relation to abduction of 13-year-old on weekend that followed Easter. So the police have charged a 32-year-old man with the murder and rape of Emily Meng in 2016. It is the same man charged with the custodial rape of a 13-year-old girl in southwest Zealand on the weekend of April 15th through 16th. The police have informed Emily Meng's family of the charges, the police said at a press conference on Wednesday, which also include deprivation of liberty. Quote, for the sake of the further investigation, we cannot go into all the information that led to the charges. The police inspector, however, did reveal that the police have seized a Hyundai i30 car that the 32-year-old owned in 2016, the year in which Emily disappeared and was killed. It was discovered in Slovakia. The accused man, who has submitted a DNA sample, has also been charged with threats and the attempted rape of a 15-year-old student last year in November. The, now, the police will not reveal the concrete evidence that has led to the 32-year-old being charged in the case of the murder of Emily. Quote, we need to be able to work on those things without visualizing what they are, he explained. The man being held is pleading not guilty to the new charges. 
So hopefully that they have caught their man and that justice will be brought to little Emily. And with that, guys, that's all I've got for you for this week. Sorry that it's a day late. Um, you know, I have a regular nine to five, lots of stuff going on. It's spring doing the whole garden and all of that. But even though it's a day late, have a great week, guys. We'll get through this. Have a great day. <laughs>